We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. Well, hello, my name is Monica and I am an alcoholic. My sobriety date is February 21st of 2022. I am a native Floridian and a very proud member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And today I'm thrilled to be able to bring my story to so many people to talk about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And really, my main purpose when I tell my story is to create hope in the individual that could still be struggling. I entered the rooms of AA a decade ago and have less than six months of sobriety. So my journey has been uh, quite interesting. Um, Alcohol has beat me up to the core, but yet it is also, because of this program, it has also given me a life and made many, many promises come true, although it has been a rough journey. So when I was young, I was raised with a single mother for the first like 12 years of my life. And then around 13, I made the transition to then be raised by a single father. (laughs) So my parents divorced when I was young. I couldn't even tell you much about that. Don't remember it. And like I said, I lived with my mom in those formative years until middle school and then moved and transitioned to my dad into the middle school, high school years. And then by 17, I was on my own. As a young child, we were we were raised pretty poor. I have one sibling, one sister with my single with my single parent. Um she did what she could as a hairdresser. There was one consistent thing and that was there was always alcohol on a daily basis uh in my mother's hand. And as a child, as you grow up through that, you believe that that's what you're supposed to do. You drink that just the same as you eat your toast in the morning. My mom suffered from some mental illnesses, and I was the kind of kid that would get the tennis racket out and pretend I was the Judds and totally have a jam session for her to try to help her with her struggles and and her mental illnesses. So as a child, I witnessed a lot of trauma, a lot of just depression, but I saw one thing. And that thing was that my mom could quickly switch her behavior, attitude, and mentality by taking a drink of wine. Wine was her favorite. So my first drink was at nine years old. I guess I thought, you know, I'm having a bad day. I'm afraid. I was full of fear. As a a kid, I was totally full of fear. So I took that first drink at nine years old. That drink led, led to really spending a lot of time with older people. 
and older people that I then drank with at 10 years old, 11 years old, 12 years old. I was a blackout drinker from the very beginning. Luckily, my dad came along at 13 and what I, how I refer to that is he kind of saved me, meaning he took me out of a very dysfunctional environment and brought me to Orlando where I have had established new friends and new skill sets and started playing basketball, making great grades. Um, all of these wonderful things were happening And as I continue to spend time in a positive environment, I no longer was a child that was behaving in ways that I, that I was behaving before. I mean, sex, drugs, and alcohol at 10 years old. And it really just came back to the fact that we weren't supervised and my mom was very ill. So yay, life is good, right? I'm I'm thriving as a 13-year-old, 14-year-old all the way through. By the time I was in 11th grade, I decided that I was ready to be on my own. I had a car and I had I knew I was going to be going to the University of Central Florida. And so I moved out, got an apartment and really was a very independent woman at a very young age. And my dad supported that through college. I didn't drink very much at all through high school. I, I didn't drink at all towards the end of college and getting into my, you know, career and, and really developing who I was and what I wanted to, to do with my life. I would say that last year of college and then after graduation, alcohol became my everything for celebration, for sadness, really anytime, every time. I was always the host of every party. Hey, everybody look at me, you know, in in sales. So I always had to be number one, always had to make a ton of money. This was my mentality in the 20s. And I drank probably four times a week. I drank socially because probably four times a week I was doing something social. Didn't suffer consequences. The blackouts didn't happen. No DUIs. Wasn't hurt. Didn't hurt anybody. Just had some awful hangovers for about 10 years. I drank successfully from 20 to 30, we'll say. Successfully. (laughs) Um, 30 hit and I got my first DUI by 30. I knew I was an alcoholic by 30. I was prepared to start attending meetings. I knew I had to do something. My first DUI did not stop me from drinking. If anything, it encouraged my drinking. I suffered with depression, with anxiety. I would use alcohol to to settle that. Around this time, around the age of 30 and around, you know, around the time of drinking, about 10 years straight of drinking on a regular basis, I still was not yet a pickle. And I say that because I wasn't I wasn't drinking in the morning. I wasn't obsessing about it. 
But within a year of daily, heavy, daily drinking, within one year of of heavy, heavy, daily drinking, I absolutely became a full-blown alcoholic, fall down drunk, um, completely every single time blackout. And I continued to drink until it sent me to rehab. So my first rehab was about seven years ago. And at the rehab, I was able to learn the principles of AA and all of the all of the tools in the toolbox. And I left there with the fire in my gut that I was never going to drink again and I could stay sober for the rest of my life. Well, in fact, I did stay sober for three years. And it was good quality sobriety in the beginning. And then I stopped going to meetings and stopped working with my sponsor and really just felt like I had it. Like I had this. You know, I was one of the members that would say that they felt like they could take a test and graduate and, and, and be done with it. So that was kind of me. And within, I would say, just a few months, I picked up that first drink. After three years of sobriety, I picked up the first drink. At the time, I didn't know what that meant. I read it a million times in the book. I heard it a million times in meetings but I still didn't know what it meant. And, you know, I don't know if I was blocking out the fact that I didn't want to to accept it, but it was the first drink that I needed to stay away from, but it was the first drink I wanted. So I relapsed after three years, which due to the progressiveness of this disease, it was awful. Uh, It led to a second DUI, it led to suicide attempts, it led to alcoholic seizures, it led to jail time, it led to four hospitalizations, it led to a lot of pain for not just me, but for my entire family. So after that relapse, I was able to redo my steps, find a new sponsor, get it back together, and then have about a year of sobriety. And again, I relapsed. So for the past three years, I've been a chronic, we'll call it a chronic relapser, so to speak. And now today, yesterday made uh, five months of sobriety. So the interesting part of all of that is through all the relapses, Each time it just got worse and worse and worse, just like it says in the book, just like our members talk about, just like the fellowship agrees. You know, if you're going to go out, most people have never heard anybody come back in and have anything good to say. Every relapse meant that I separated myself from my family and I drank until tried to drink to death, but I never, I never did. I never wanted to hurt myself and I never drank to be anybody different. I just drank to get drunk. I just drank to numb things. That's what it comes down to. I didn't drink to be accepted. I didn't drink to feel, you know, that good about myself. I I drank because I wanted to be drunk. I didn't want to deal with, I wanted to deal with life, but I wanted to deal with it on my own terms. So, 
as time went on, the chronic relapsing got so bad by the time, say, if I picked up a drink on a Monday and I, the, the way that, that I would drink would be anything, everything and all the time. So if I wasn't passed out, I was drinking, didn't matter what it was, I was going to drink it. The progressiveness of this disease for me has gone far beyond uh, what I would ever imagine. If there's anything more than a pickle, I don't know what's more what's more than a pickle, then that would be an example of the progressiveness for, for this alcoholic. I've always had a strong faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I know that he's been with me through this entire journey. So I've always felt, always felt as if the pain that I've caused others and the pain that I caused myself was for a purpose. So I realized in hindsight, those times of sobriety, it was step 12 that I didn't do a lot of. I thought, well, I share in meetings, I call other alcoholics every now and then, but I never sponsored anybody. I never really, you know, got close to another alcoholic enough to help them. So luckily over time, time takes time. And as our, as our readings say, sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly, I'm on the slow end of things. I would have loved to have been that person that got the one chip and, and, and they stayed sober for the rest of their life. But that's not my story and that's okay. My journey was just a little bit more bumpy. And I'm lucky that some of the yets that could have happened, that those things have not happened. Uh, my marriage of 15 years is intact. He supports me and he understands the disease. My kids are healing through all the process of the pain. Those are some of the promises coming true. My friends trust me now to invite me out with them where before they were too afraid. Over time, healing has happened within. I lived with so much shame and blame over my 11 visits to rehab. You know, who goes to rehab 11 times? And I would show up at the same place. I go back to the same place where they know me by first name and I would show up and say, I just need to, to detox and then I'm out of here. So I even had my own, my own, cause I, I was into running the show back then and in control. I even had my own type of program when I went there and I would let them know, Hey, I'm going to be here five days sober up and then I'm going to be leaving on the fourth or whatever. And they would let me do it. So during the times of relapse, I always knew, okay, I have this place I can go back to if I get really bad because I wanted to continue to drink, but I didn't want, obviously I didn't want the, the consequences, the repercussions because I had already experienced so many. So I told you a little bit about what my childhood was like and what it was like to an active alcoholism and what it's like today is a world of difference. And the biggest difference is the obsession is gone. You know, an obsession is something that has no reasoning behind it. When you're obsessed, you know, when I'm obsessed about alcohol, I have no reasoning. I can't reason with the fact that I should not drink that because of X, Y, and Z. I have no reasoning. For me, 
now just having the obsession of the obsession released, it's allowed me to have sanity. God has restored me to sanity or is restoring me. I'm not going to say he's restored me completely, but he is, he is actively restoring me to sanity one day at a time. And the way that I live truly is one day at a time and, and mostly one moment at a time. And how refreshing and how peaceful that is, is unexplainable. Because if I can live one moment at a time, all I have to do is what's in front of me. Because for this alcoholic, too many things make me want to turn back to that solution that I learned as a child. Now, something very interesting about my disease of alcoholism is that I had the I already had the alcoholic thinking and alcoholic behaviors from a very young age, and it started with food. For me, it was easy to accept I was an alcoholic because as a kid, I would abuse food in the same manner that I would abuse alcohol. So I was able to really accept the fact I'm an alcoholic. It just has taken me so much time to let it go let it go and allow God to do the work in me rather than me trying to to make it happen, rather than me trying to control it. And today I I really follow the lead of the Lord and not the lead of Monica. My own will will send me to the liquor store. And I know today that if I don't do at least three things for my sobriety every single day, then I have a chance of losing it. And if I lose my sobriety, I have a chance of losing my life, my husband, and my kids. So today I'm full of hope, passion, energy, life, love, where in hindsight, if I were to look in the mirror five minutes or five, you know, six years ago, or even a year ago, I was a dead soul. Like my soul inside was dead from the disease of alcoholism. Really, the progressiveness of the disease has gotten so bad within me that if I were to take, let's say, more than two sips, then it would lead to a blackout. So I can play the tape. I have the luxury of being able to pause, pray, and take a few minutes and think about what will happen, will happen. Not what might happen, but what will happen is the unknown. And so I don't live in fear over that. I'm actually very grateful to have that skill set. But for me, it's something that I often have to do because I still have thoughts of drinking. And I'll never forget it when I when I was whining to my sponsor one day. This was early on in my attempts of sobriety. Why do I keep thinking about it? Why do I keep thinking about alcohol? And she says to me, because you're an alcoholic. And those were the words that really resonated and reminded me that it's okay. I'm aware of what the problem is. There's a solution. And I get to be part of a fellowship that is full of love and and trust and care and concern. And I could go on and on. All of the women that have helped me over 
over the course of the years has just been phenomenal. Today, I wake up and I don't run to the recycle bin to to see what's left. Today, I wake up and I say, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for keeping me sober yesterday. Can you Can you help me today? <laughs> can I have that daily reprieve today, keeping me sober today? and helping me be of service to others. And I have redone my steps, and now I am moving um, into the stage of starting to help others and starting to sponsor those that may that God may bring into my life. And I owe it all to AA because the reason is during all of those relapses, guess what? I always had a place to go back to. I always had a phone number I could call. I always, always had a meeting I could go to no matter where I was at. So although I had a belly full of beer and many other liquids, we'll just say a belly full of poison and a brain full of AA, I also had the love of AA. So the relapses, I had a place to go. And so I'm hoping as many of us alcoholics that struggle a little bit more than others, I'm hoping that I don't have to relive that. My boys don't have to relive it. My husband doesn't have to relive it. Um, and that we just continue on, on the road of sobriety. And I think the biggest change that happened within me that others may be able to relate to is I finally saw And I finally felt the pain that I was causing other people. Feeling our own pain is easy. But when you finally feel and see the pain of others, that's what really got me to open my eyes and stop and start to work the program harder. And when I started to work the program and apply the principles in all of our affairs, which that right there has taken me 10 years, to, to 10 years to understand. <laughs> I'm a slow learner, but my sponsor has helped me to work the program, apply the principles. If there's a problem in your life. What step can you use? I've got the tools. I've got the support. I've got the love to stay sober. And I'm grateful today that I can tell this story that I wasn't a victim of that alcoholic seizure. I wasn't a victim of suicide. Instead, I'm a, a survivor and a contributor to the AA program and a help to others that I can be of service to. And that's pretty much my story. Thank you, Monica. You are going to take me back five months ago, please, and tell me what happened with your last drink or the beginning of your sobriety rather? Yeah, great question. So five months ago, it was a very compulsive type of behavior, just an average day. I would say that there was probably a lot going on per se, but nothing in particular that would have made me need to drink or even want to drink. I found myself deciding on a whim that I wanted to drink that day. So I went to the store and of course got whatever I wanted. 
whatever I needed. And I am very much a binge drinker. So I then, you know, drank for two days straight, absolutely two days straight. And that was it. After the two days, my body physically, mentally, emotionally, all the above could not handle it. But something else that happened was my family expressed how much pain they were in watching me go through this, watching me basically harm myself and continue to drink the poison. And I just asked God for mercy. I got on my knees and just asked him to to take away the obsession, to take the drink away. And I was able to stop, made it to a meeting immediately, started to work the steps immediately. That was the day that I, by chance, it was in God's path that I met my sponsor. And we began to get into action. That was the key. So five months ago, I I picked up the drink, drank for two days, put it back down, and haven't picked up a drink since. Thank you. Thank you for that. You talked about the obsession being removed. And you talked about thoughts of drinking. So for perhaps for the newcomer, can you explain the difference between if the obsession was removed today, Monica, then you shouldn't think about drinking ever. Can you walk us through the difference between those two? I can. Yeah, absolutely. I could, And I could even throw in a, another thought, which is a, the craving, the physical craving. So the obsession is the thought in the mind that just repeats over and over again that you're you're really wanting the alcohol the thought is a is is much more temporary and it's much less in my opinion it's much less powerful and the thought is simply a conditioning of the mind so if you think about it me as a child um and then teenage and then my 20s and 30s you know alcohol was my solution so if i'm in a pickle and something's bothering me or i've got a dilemma then my solution would have been that so really it's reprogramming of you know what i'm going to do instead of picking up a drink so the obsession is a much more stronger compelling feeling that will will almost take over your body where a thought accept it and it will pass. And then earlier I mentioned, which is, it's one of my favorites to talk about because I've, it's just such a real thing. And that is the physical craving. I mean, now we're talking, we got a physical craving too. My goodness, we've got a mental craving, we've got emotional craving, and we've got, you know, a physical craving. And for me, for this alcoholic, I mean, I was a morning drinker because I needed to stop shaking. So that physical craving was part of my story as well. I'm wondering, that was a great explanation. I'm just pondering in my head. I wonder if the obsession is the mind and the physical and the thought, which is much more temporary as you eloquently defined is more emotional, which is caused by conditioning of the mind, 
because we had these emotional reactions to life and our solution was alcohol. And so I'm just having this little puzzle. Yes, I agree with you. I think that the puzzle, so to speak, that you created there is exactly what it is to the T because you can't forget about the emotional part. It's our best friend for so long. It worked for so long. It worked. I I had a I've had a great fun life with alcohol, but I've had a miserable, almost near death life with alcohol, right? So it's it Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but the way that you put it together, that's that that's great because it helps us to remember there's an emotional side to this. That's why a lot of alcoholics, AA isn't enough and we have to seek outside help. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Yeah. You talked about the the suffering and I'm wondering, I'm picturing, what did it look like between those 11 rehab detox visits when you'd go back home? What were you doing when you were drinking for two days? What were you, what were you entertaining yourself with? Because at that point you're blacking out. Yeah. It's, so it's pretty sad. It's the due to the progressiveness of it. My active alcoholism, I would always be in my bedroom by myself uh, with everything I needed. And then this is very, you know, sad, but my husband then would take the role, obviously, to take care of the kids if, you know, they're older, but he would take the role of taking care of me. Mm. So I would, he's been through it all with me, making sure or trying to get me to eat, which, you know, you don't necessarily want to eat when you're, Mm-mm. when you're drinking, but that's what I would do. Isolation. And that's not how it all started, right? I right. mean, the isolation come, comes at the end when it's so bad that you know, because here's the thing. I know I'm going to black out. I know I'm going to have an accident. I know I'm going to fall. I know I already know all these things are going to happen. So instead, if I isolate, then I can, quote, unquote, protect myself. Well, no, it doesn't work that way. It's so it's I'm powerless over alcohol. Therefore, it has all the power. So even if I did isolate and drink for two days, it still caused havoc and I still hurt myself during the process. So there it's so there's no there's no way to do it, period. No. <laughs> there's no, right, right. It's over. And my my friend once said to me, she said, You're gonna have to do you're gonna have to get sober anyway. Why not now? And and that's that stuck with me. Why not now? Why why go through additional suffering when I can just now stop? And I've been able to go on a long trip with my husband internationally for a vac- our anniversary and not drink, been able to travel to different places and not drink, been able to attend a wedding and not drink. And I'm waiting for the day of neutrality. You know, neutrality is going to be the most beautiful day of my life where alcohol is neutral. I no longer think of it either way. I'm sure maybe a thought would pop in every now and then, but when when it becomes neutral like it was at one time in my life, that's freedom. That's the freedom I'm after. I like that. I had not thought about that, but my dreams, my using dreams have progressed to 
not drinking. And in my dream, I'm choosing not to drink. And I'm thinking, maybe I'm getting closer to neutrality as you're explaining that. (laughs) It's all about me, Monica. It's all about me. Right, 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 right. That's how we live. We have to. (laughs) But it's a good thing to think about is if, if you can make neutrality your goal. I mean, we don't necessarily control it per se, but if I'm neutral towards something, then I don't need it or think about it or want it. And, and I just can't wait for that special day to come. Yeah. Yeah. And I sounded judgy. I want to back up a little bit. When I asked you the question about what the heck were you doing during these blackout drinkings? And oh, I know no, exactly what you were doing because I did it pretty much the entire year of 2010. So I know oh, exactly what those yes. days look like. I woke up with a black eye and I had lived alone. And I had no idea how yeah. I got a black eye. So I would lose three days at a time was my standard MO. Um, so, yeah. So I know what those days look like. I was being dramatic with my intonation for the people that do not know what those terrible days look like. Oh, aren't mm-hmm. they terrible? They're aren't terrible. They, they're terrible. And then everything, like for me, I you lived alone. I didn't live. I don't live alone. So I had to do all of the extra work up front just to get it in the house and hide it. Then I didn't even, I would get so drunk. I didn't know where I put it. Mm -hmm. And then I'd get more because nowadays it's all delivery, right? I can get, I I can, yeah. I mean, I can have it at the, it's at the, it's literally, you know, how we say it's at an arm's length. It's even closer nowadays. Because yeah. I would have it delivered right to my front door and never have any issues with going out and getting it. So, you know, I've suffered legally. I've, I've suffered really all of the yets have happened except for death and losing, losing my, my family. They've stuck in there with me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I lived alone and I still hid bottles. So there's some insanity for you. And I lived alone because I had pushed everyone away. Yeah. So sobriety's a lot different. Do you have depression or anxiety in uh, in sobriety? Um, I deal with anxiety. I've always, and that's kind of like a hereditary thing. Depression, not so much. And my anxiety is probably more of just, I have just a lot of energy and I've got to stay busy and working from home. You have to just make sure that you're staying busy, but it's not near as bad. It's not near as bad compared to with active drinking, active drinking. All of that was worse. I had horrible anxiety and depression while drinking, but towards the end of my drinking, there were so many stop and goes, stop and go, meaning drink three days. Like you were saying the three days drink three days, stop for two months, drink four days, stop for three months, drink five days. So there were so many stop and go that my brain, all the chemicals in my brain, they're still trying to figure out how to balance out. Yeah. Yep. I remember that. I remember when I got sober, sober, sober in February, 2016, I was just, no, no Prozac. No, I need six months to just filter through. And then in six months, doc, will talk about what I need. Mm-hmm. Not everybody can do that, but I certainly needed to just filter it through. I didn't, didn't want to get, get on any meds because I was detoxing. 
Right, right. And, you know, the word detoxing, it's a, yeah, you were detoxing and that that's part of my story too, is, you know, all those years of drinking and then I would decide I would want to stop, right? You get like all the shame and blame starts to get to you and you really don't want to drink and you really want to be sober. So you detox at home. And I did that 30, 40 times and full DTs, everything. And I look back on that. When you brought up detoxing, I look back on that. That is true insanity because I already knew what it was going to be like. And it was the most painful thing I ever went through. Well, then years later, I discovered, oh, you just go to this place and they give you medicine and you sleep for three days. And then that, so that, that I had a lot of enablement kind of going on too, where I had this regular, you know, rehab to visit, you know, early on, I had a husband that would get me whatever I wanted now, no way, thank God. So I had a lot of enablement happening, but now I have none. And that's, and that, that's very helpful, obviously. I had a friend of mine who passed away from this disease in September of 2020. Her husband used to, when she was detoxing, he would put one ounce bottles of liquor, he'd hide them around the house. And then every four hours he'd, she'd call him and he'd tell her where the next dose was. Yeah, and she'd go get the next dose, and then she'd, you know, four hours later she'd go get the, the next, next and uh, and it didn't work out for her. She fell down the stairs when she was detoxing once, and never got up again. I'm so sorry to hear that. Oh my gosh, because that's a method I think a lot of us have used, and oh, bless her heart. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to hear that. Oh my goodness. And that's why it's, that's why we don't know what's going to get us from that first drink. And I, I, I promise you, I did not even understand that. I would repeat it. I would ask people. I, it was like my brain was blocked off from it. I didn't want to accept it or whatever, but now it's so clear in my mind that first drink I'm off to the races. Yeah. I did like how you pointed that out because it's so simple. But you just want the first drink. I don't want to think it through. I just want the first drink. <laughs> it's like when I watch yeah. The Wizard of Oz or I watch a movie I've seen a thousand times and I'm sitting there hoping the end will be different. And it's like, I know that it can't be different logically, but right. I'm going to sit here and hope anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know why I chose Wizard of Oz. That's so random. There's so many other movies that you want the ending to be different. That one is not a good one. No, that's a great, (laughs) that's a great point. And we want the ending to be different. Or for me, one of the biggest things was to romanticize the drink. You know, Mm -hmm. if I'm at a resort or if we're vacationing or or if we just do a day at the beach and, you know, she gets to have that drink or that entire group over there, they get to party, you know, just self then the self-pity would kick in and and you know once I started having more awareness as to how this was affecting me and how I needed to handle it I became a little bit better at it because before it was compulsive behavior it was oh I'm envious that she's able to drink so guess what I'm going to go get me a drink 
where now it's just being more mindful of where that leads me. And again, I go one moment at a time. Like right now, I can't think past one o'clock. I, I know I'm with you till one. And then when 101 hits, then I think about what I have to do from one to 110. <laughs> okay. mm-hmm. I just try to keep it little and simple because if I get too frazzled or too overwhelmed, I'm still I'm still programmed that that's a solution when it's not. And then I call my sponsor, of course. Yeah, I hear the think it all the way through. Like think it all the way through the end. What is that really going to be like? Right. Does your uh, so since I have you for nine more minutes, I'm gonna I'm gonna take it. Okay. Does your <laughs> husband or children see something different in you in the last five months than previous? bits of sobriety? My husband, he's expressed unbelievably so that he says he just feels like something's different. And I shared with him that I felt like what was different was I saw his pain. I felt his pain and I didn't want to do that to him any longer. My husband has definitely noticed something different and he's brought it up a gazillion times and he's he started having panic attacks. Um, I, this was crazy, but my alcoholism started to affect him physically. Mm-hmm. And that's really what got me to stop that day. And when he was having, you know, four or five panic attacks a day, because I mean, he was truly taking care of me when I was incapable of taking care of myself. And of course, they want to solve the problem, but we we both know that no human power has the ability to do that. So, and then my kids, I can, they don't have to say a word and I know how they feel. They, they're just elated. They are at peace. They, you know, they feel safe. They're now, do they you know, sometimes possibly think, you know, if I go to bed early, for example, do they think, well, is mom, she okay? You know, they may have that in the back of their minds, but they see a difference in their kids. So they kind of live for the day, not really in the past, you know? Hmm. So everybody, everybody that's really close to me seems, has asked me what's different this time. And my answer is, I finally felt the pain of my husband and my kids, like felt it, not just saw it. I've, I've known about the pain I've been causing people in my life for years. I've, I've already known about that, but when you feel it and you feel their, their pain and you see what's happening, it's like, holy crap. I, this is not, this is not how we're going to live our beautiful lives. I mean, we have a beautiful life beautiful. And I still have consequences. I've got a breathalyzer in the car. You know, I've got, I still have consequences, but it's nothing like what it could be. That's for sure. I love that answer. My bottom was looking through the kitchen window at my husband and my then one, two-year-old and realizing, feeling that same pain, like, wow, I'm doing this. To, I'm hiding drunk in the backyard, looking through the kitchen window with the breathalyzer in my hand. 
Insanity. Insanity. (laughs) So people say, don't get sober for somebody else. I'm like, I don't think that's what I did. And that's not what Monica's saying at all. She's saying that she had a moment of lacking where you didn't have self-centeredness and selfishness, where you saw the importance of somebody else's existence and your effect on that existence. That's it. Absolutely. And that, and that truly comes in time, you know, that really, really comes in well years. It took me years to really get there, to, to get to that point, to experience that. Yeah. Experience that. That's right. It is experience. Uh, that's, that's a good word for it. Okay. Final question for the chronic relapser listening, what message would you like to leave with them? There's something that's absolutely, I think, critical with an alcoholic that chronically relapses, and that is there's underlining issues. There's underlining concerns. There's underlining pain, trauma, whatever it may be, and that sometimes we need to seek outside help to be able to work through things that maybe we are not even aware of. Alcoholics do a really good job at manipulating others. We also do a really good job at manipulating ourselves and our thinking. And I feel like someone who's chronically relapsing like I was, I needed to seek outside help, number one. And number two, my faith needed to be much, much stronger. I needed to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that I had believed in ever since I can, ever since I was a little girl, I believed in him. And at the age of 18, I accepted him and can feel him in my life and talk to him. But I wasn't putting any faith in in him that he was going to help me with my alcoholism. There was a point where maybe I was even mad that I had to deal with it. And he wouldn't take it away. So, you know, I think that the advice is be open-minded to get help from everywhere. And it is a we program. For years, I tried to just do it on my own and be that occasional meeting, you know, maker and occasionally make that social phone call. I didn't really attend many lunches or anything like that. But I I was part of AA, but I wasn't, if that makes sense. So make yourself part of the, the fellowship. Remember, it's a we program. Seek outside help and never, ever, ever give up. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.